Our, our text today is what we often call, uh, people often call red letter text. It is a portion of the scripture which is a, a direct quotation from scripture. All of scripture is God breathed, but we also have quite a lot of specific testimony of precisely what Christ said during his, his earthly ministry to us. And uh, so if you would uh, please stand if you're able um, for the reading of God's word. We do this as a sign of humility and an acknowledgement that God is himself speaking to us here today. Matthew 7, uh, verse 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. This is the reading so far of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for the privilege of freely gathering together here today to hear your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glory and the grace that's in your gospel. Won't you guard me from error Would you illuminate the truth by your spirit, save the lost, comfort the church, and magnify your name today. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I greet you all with grace and peace from our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was and is and is to come. And uh, to our visitors here today, you are most welcome. We are so thrilled to have you with us. And uh, we we, uh, just would like you to join us for coffee or tea and some fellowship afterwards. So as we sang in one of those songs, uh, th- there are storms, many, many storms, and almost every single person in this room, if we're honest, is in a storm of some point, of some kind right now. It may be a storm of sin, it may be the storm of life. But today's message is that through the storm, Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord of all as we just sang. I've titled today's sermon, Enter by the Narrow Gate, The Gracious Commandment Unto Life. We're going to be exploring some important and difficult subject matter today, the realities of heaven and of hell. Jesus spent a great deal of his teaching dealing with both of these, uh, these uh, realities, but actually far more time, in fact, talking about hell. Which is interesting, is his wrath, his anger, his, his, just, his justice, his judgment, and hell are terrifying to the heart and mind. And even so, they are far worse than we could ever imagine. And yet, at the very same time, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his forgiveness, his forbearance, his love, are all staggering, astounding, beautiful, and most importantly, are freely available in the offer of the gospel to anyone who would receive it. If his wrath is so much more terrible than we could ever imagine, then let me tell you how much more wonderful his love is than you could ever dare to dream. And so there is no more important question than this, how do I get to heaven? Perhaps this question that has eternal consequences deserves a more prominent place in our lives than it tends to occupy. Fortunately, we have an opportunity today to make it so. I pray that the powerful, active, 
living, authoritative, inexhaustible word of God will address each one of you with clarity and with urgency and with power. This is the message for which I am prepared to give my life, and I expect to do so at some stage in my life, because it is the message by which God may save yours. And now, I don't suppose that there is any message more despised by mankind than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our postmodern world where truth is considered relative, and you can have your truth and I can have mine, it is considered deeply intolerant to say that one thing is right and another is wrong. How dare you make exclusive claims on the truth? Don't you judge me. But we are merely heralds of a message from God. And unfortunately, this sad state of affairs extends to much of the church as well. It seems today that the only heresy is saying that there is heresy. But in our text this morning, we find the place where the rubber really meets the road, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you may have heard it said that there is one God, but many ways to him, or that there are many gods, or that there is no God or that everything is one with God and itself, or that everything is God, or that God is an idea. So how is it that Jesus can make the statement that there are only two ways, when there seem to be so many options, so many religions? There are literally thousands of names. I'm just going to do a few here, a few system, uh, rituals, structures. Um, a few of them would be... Um, Hinduism, Taoism, Islam, Judaism, Sikhism, African religion, Christianity, paganism, atheism, Christian science, agnosticism, polytheism, Jehovah's Witness, Wicca, Scientology, neo-paganism, Roman Catholicism, mysticism, Hare Krishna, New Age, and Druidism. And seriously, there are literally over a million recognized religions. I've just listed a few of them, and each one of these has their own sub-sects, it would seem. But there are only two religions, only two There is the religion of divine accomplishment and the religion of man's accomplishments. The religions of man's righteousness and the religions of the righteousness of God. And every one of those I listed, except biblical Christianity, is a religion of man's accomplishment and not one of divine accomplishment. Only Christianity, the biblical religion of the self-existent, eternal and trinitarian God, is the, is the dividing line between true and false religion. Only this religion relies on God's righteousness. Now, I realize that this is a polarizing statement, a dividing statement, but it is meant to do so. That is what truth claims do. They divide between falsehood and truth, between error and truth. And it, this often gets accused of being hate speech, But listen to the subject matter. We're talking about the way to life. This is the deepest kind of love that God would show us the way to life and to avoid destruction. But why do we need to be shown the way to life? James 4.14 says this, You are but a mist that appears for a moment and then vanishes. Your life is over like that. Whether it's one day, maybe you weren't even born. 50 million babies were not born in the United States since 1972 with the Roe v. Wade decision of the Supreme Court. Maybe you lived 106 years. It doesn't matter. It's a mist compared to eternity. So you are going somewhere. 
and you are going there forever. But the Bible tells us that we are headed to destruction because of God's holiness. We are born on the highway to hell, as ACDC very accurately sang. Mankind's biggest problem is not poverty, disease, hunger, crime, unstable dictatorships, or Hillary Clinton, terrible as those things might be. It is God's holiness. God is so supremely and infinitely holy. His law is so perfect that when a single sin is committed against him, it is an infinite treason against an infinitely holy God, and he must punish this. The Exodus 34, 7 states it this way. He will by no means clear the guilty. Why? Because he is just. Think of it this way. Let's say I'm a judge, and right now in front of me, I have a person who abused, tortured, and then murdered a seven-year-old girl. And I say to you, you're all the, the gallery in the courtroom, and I go, how's it? I'm actually in a pretty good mood today. You know, I'm a good guy. I think, you go for it. You're, you're free. Don't worry. You would call me so wicked and corrupt, and you would pull me from the bench faster than I could breathe. What kind of corrupt judge would let that person go after what he did? Now, the human heart doesn't want to recognize that single sin against God makes that look standard grade. And I'm hoping that the Word of God today will help you recognize why that is, why that is so. And, uh, but then now, so the, a single sin. Uh, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. And uh, in the Old Testament, this is expressed as the soul that sins shall die. That's Ezekiel 8.20. That's, that's bad news. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we are all going to receive the wages of sin, which is death. And Romans 3.10 says there's not one righteous, no, not one. So each of us is born, heading to destruction, choosing sin over loving God. Don't believe it? Let me prove it to you. Let's start with a few of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before you. Who here in this room, just for one moment, has had anything more important in their lives to them than God? Okay, what do we call that? Idolatry. So I'm 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 an idolater. We are idolaters. So, you shall not take the, Lord, the name of your, the Lord your God in vain. Have any of you ever said, oh my... Okay, what is that called? Blasphemy. Okay, blasphema. You shall not steal. Has anybody here not stolen anything? I mean the smallest thing. Like whether it was you didn't return a pencil, whether you kept a pen, whatever it was, whether you stole the car, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so so I, I can't put my hand up. What do you call that person? A thief. I'm a thief. Honor your mother and father. Have any of you ever obeyed everything your parents ever asked you to do? Never gave them a dodgy look? Never anything? Not me. What do you call, what do you call that? Delinquency. I'm a delinquent. <laughs> you shall not murder. But Jesus says, if you've got, if you've got, yeah, absolutely, if you've got, if you've got angry at someone, if you've, if you've, if you've got angry, if you've lost your temper, in unrighteous anger, and all of us, if drivers cut you off and you've lost your lid, that's murder in your heart. That's the standard of the law. Murderer. You shall not commit adultery. Has any of you ever looked, even for a brief moment, at someone with a sexual thought who is not your husband or your wife? 
Can any of you honestly say that that's not the case? And Jesus says, if you've done that, you have already committed adultery in your heart. It doesn't matter whether you've actually gone and done the deed. You've already committed it in your heart. Adulterer. So we've only done six. And, we are, and so far, we're idolaters, blasphemers, thieves, delinquents, murderers, and adulterers. That's a great start. You see, our, your guilt before God, my guilt before God, is an objective fact. And both the word of God, which we're preaching here today, and your conscience testifies to that fact. And God and the angels have borne witness to each and every single one of these things. Everything that you have done from the womb to the tomb has been witnessed in the high court of, evidence, uh, high court of heaven. And those facts are in evidence. Let me tell you, your spouse, your child, your friend, your employee may have forgotten your harsh words, but God has not. Your incognito browser mode on your computer may keep no record of your pornography that you viewed, but God was present for each second. No exceptions. In Isaiah 53, six phrases it like this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And some of you right now are squirming in your seats beneath the weight of your sin. But let me tell you that your sense of guilt before God is a sweet grace. Because it is the opportunity for you to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. I know that the temperature in the room has just gone up. But let me tell you, again, this is a supreme grace from God. He sent the law for this reason, for it to be a mirror, for it to prove to you that you are not holy, so that you can look to Jesus Christ, who is. Look, if I put Hitler next to me, I look holy in comparison. But God will not compare me to Hitler on the day of judgment. He will compare me to the divine standard of his law. So how dare I get my sense of holiness, how dare I appraise myself based on the wickedness of another human being instead of the standard by which I will ultimately be judged. And so this is what the law does to us. It says, you are a sinner so that you can receive the gospel that if you repent and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So the law seems like it has a tyranny over your life and it is if you try and keep it. Its function is not for you to have a set of guidelines to follow so that you can be holy. It's to prove to you that there is not one righteous, not even one. And so now let us continue with this, this text as we unpack the message of the, of, of the gospel so that you can do something with this weight. So what are the destinations? Destruction or life? No other options. No middle ground. Nothingness is not an option. That's called nihilism. It's a lie. Doing it over again is not an option. That's called reincarnation. It's a lie. Ex extra time to get your righteousness up to scratch. That's called purgatory. It's a lie. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And it is appointed unto men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. You die... And then the judgment comes. A judgment unto eternal life or a judgment under eternal, uh, eternal death, eternal destruction. And what the destination depends on, a, on your res response to a command that we're going to look at uh, later.
So let's look at a few biblical descriptions of heaven and hell. Of, of hell, Matthew 13, 42 says this. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Revelations 19, 20 describes a lake of burning sulfur. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 says they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But of heaven, Philippians 3, 20 to 21 says, but our citizenship, that is, Christians is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself and Revelation 2:21:4 says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be death no more no more pain no more mourning no more crying no more suffering all the former things have passed away. And let me tell you, once you're at a destination, that's it. It's fixed. Luke 16, 25 to 26 says, Between us in heaven um, and, uh, and you in hell, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to there would not be able and none may be able to cross from, from there to us. Only two destinations. Life or destruction, heaven or hell. And who will be occupying these two destinations? What are the two groups of people? Well, again, the Bible makes it clear that there are only two groups of people. God's people and God's enemies. God's children and the devil's children. Those walking in the light and those walking in darkness. Uh, those who love God and those who love themselves. There is no one in hell who loves God. No one is there who loves God. And we continue, having been born in sin, at enmity with God and hating God, we will continue that way all the way to hell, blaspheming his holy name throughout all of eternity, cursing his might and power and, and, and his judgment and his perfection, unless we repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Again, there is no middle ground. Two ways two gates, two destinations, two groups of people. So what are these ways? Well, as we mentioned earlier, there's the religion of man's accomplishment in its many names and forms, and the religion of divine accomplishment, biblical Christianity. The religion of man's accomplishment says this, I can make up for my own sins and create my own positive righteousness by doing other good things. Uh, the religion of divine accomplishment says this, I am born in sin, Psalm 51.5. I am hostile to God, Romans 8.7. I love evil, 2 Timothy 3.2. I have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3.23. I cannot be justified by my good deeds, Galatians 2.16. My own attempts at righteousness are filthy rags to God, Isaiah 64.6. Because these works issue from a wicked and deceitful heart. Jeremiah 17.9. I am dead in my sins and trespasses. Ephesians 2.1. And so, just like anything that has touched a corpse, whatever I put my hands to spreads the fragrance and the aroma of death. And because of all of this, I am incapable of doing anything that produces true righteousness. I need a savior. But there is such great news. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is Savior and that he is the only one qualified to be Savior. So look and live. Let's look at why he's the only one qualified. Only Jesus was, consumed, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born without sin, a new federal head for mankind, replacing Adam. That's Isaiah seven fourteen and others. Only he would be able to live a sinless and righteous life as a man, having not con- uh, been conceived in sin. Secondly, only God, Jesus is God incarnate. That's John 1, 1 and, and many others. He needed to be fully God and fully man in order to atone for our sins. Why? He needed to be a man so that our sins could be laid upon him. And he needed to be uh, fully God so that the value of the sacrifice was infinite to atone for the infinite sin we had committed against God. Now, only Christ actually lived a sinless life. That's Hebrews 7.23. He needed to live a sinless life so that by dying, he would not be paying for his own sins. And so he could pay for us. Do you remember in Leviticus, the sacrificial animals? What was the qualifier? They had to be spotless and without blemish. A prefigure, a foreshadow of our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Only Christ died a substitutionary death. That's Isaiah 53.4. Uh, Jesus Christ was without sin, not deserving to die, and instead God imputed our sin to him. He carried our guilt, our sin, and died in our place. And only Christ rose from the dead, having defeated death. That's Acts 2.22 and a few others. Now, we know from the testimony of Scripture, and some of us maybe from personal experience, that people have risen from the dead. Other people have risen from the dead. But they didn't rise from the dead never to die again. It was just a temporary situation. They did not defeat death. Only Jesus Christ rose from the dead, having defeated death, removing the sting. We sang that, oh, death, where is your sting? In his resurrection from the dead is contained the full payment of sin and the full victory over death. And finally, only Christ has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God to intercede for his people. That's Hebrews 7.25. See, Christ is the only one who's able to continue to intercede for his people, offering sacrifice before God. And no one else in history qualifies, and no one else who is to come will ever qualify. That is why Jesus can make the claim in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, is what he said. And it's why in Timothy 1.2, verse 5, um, for there is one God and there is one God. Mediator between God and men, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah 43, 11, even in the Old Testament, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And Acts 4, 12, there is, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. This is the foolishness of the cross. That's why the Bible says that it's a stumbling block. It is ridiculous that a man was imputed the sin of other people. He was beaten, tortured, and whipped, marched up a hill carrying his own cross, crucified, mocked, scorned, and put to death 
with everyone jeering at him. And that this, I mean, we, we saw a video last week. And that was the smallest part of what went on. Seriously, if you could, if you could see what went on in his mind and in his heart and in his, in, his, in his spirit, the physical thing was small compared to the separation and the eternal and infinite judgment that he experienced from God in that one, in that one moment. The physical was nothing. It was terrible. But if you're a Christian because Jesus physically suffered for you, you might not be a Christian. If Jesus physically suffered for you, and he suffered the weight of God's judgment against your sin. And that that is the biggest thing that Jesus has done for you. Lots of people have died trying to defend their families from a robber. But that doesn't make them the Lord of the universe. That didn't atone for their sins. It's a horrendous thing and a brave thing that they did. Brave that they were prepared to die. But only Jesus Christ can atone for sins. So we have seen that Jesus Christ is the gate the way, the, uh, the, the name by which we must be saved, and that his divine accomplishments have made a way to us for eternal life. But I think there's some, first, some important questions we now need to ask. For professing Christians, you might want to ask, am I already on the road to everlasting life? And secondly, if so, will I be able to stay on that way? And then finally, for everyone else, if I am not on that way, how do I get onto that way of everlasting life? So let's start with the first. If I'm a professing Christian, am I already on the way to everlasting life? Uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Wow. Uh, this is a good thing. If we meet the test, we're assured of our salvation and we can, we can grow in our, in our faith. If you fail the test, that's also a good thing because now you know that you need saving and so you can be saved. You're never more in danger than when you don't know that you need saving. The Christian life is a daily recognition of your need for a savior. It's not an event. It's not walking down an aisle, praying a prayer. It's a life of trusting Jesus Christ for his righteousness. Uh, so, so what is this, this test? Uh, it should be quite alarming for Christians uh, to hear Jesus' words in Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? And did we not do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Ouch. Hell is full of people who intellectually acknowledge that scripture is true. Hell is full of people who went to church every Sunday. Many associated themselves with Jesus Christ, but very few did their will. Very few bear fruit. Narrow is the way that leads to life. If you have realized that you have never really understood the gospel and that you are not on the way to eternal life, don't panic. This is good news. You now know something life-changing that but an hour ago you did not know. And we're going to deal with the way to eternal life shortly. Next question. So if I am on the way, will I be able to stay on that way? Now, this is a hot topic. It always has been. A big worry for a lot of Christians. Can I lose my salvation? Now, people have lots of counsel 
on this, lots of theories and a few twisted scriptures here and there. Um, but the Bible emphatically screams, no, you cannot lose your salvation. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. That's Jonah 2 verse 9. You see, you did not save yourself. In fact, the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Now, this is great news. Philippians 1.6 says, We can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that is salvation, justification, sanctification, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Jude 1.24 says that he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Wow. Thirdly, how do I get on to the way of everlasting life? Now, this is the some more deep meat for uh, our, our, our work today in this text. You see, the, the biggest challenge we face is discerning which way is which. You see, there isn't a giant sign on one way saying, this way to heaven, and on the other, this way to hell. They both say, this way to heaven. But only one way leads there. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but, but it's in, the end of its way is death. And Proverbs 30.12 says, There is a generation who is pure in their own eyes, but they are not washed from their filthiness. Wow. So how is it that the way that leads to destruction is actually labeled this way to heaven as well? Well, firstly, the devil is a deceiver, a master of disguise and deception. Secondly, your heart is a production factory for idols, churning out substitutes from, for God on an hourly basis. And, fi and finally, uh, even, when the realm uh, even within the realm labeled Christianity, there are many false teachers. So let's work, work through these. The problem of the devil. The devil uses a clever ally, my pride. See, we, want to, we want to believe that we can create our own righteousness before God. So any system that tells us that we can do so, very attractive. We want to believe that we are the way, the truth, and the life. And what an, a smorgasbord of options Satan has created for us. I mentioned many of them earlier. See, my friend, your good deeds will not save you. Galatians 2.16 puts it this way, By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Mary will not save you. The earth will not save you. Witch doctors will not save you. The saints will not save you. Your sports hero will not save you. Allah will not save you. Your girlfriend will not save you. Krishna will not save you. Medicine will not save you. Good intentions will not save you. Your family his heritage and history will not save you. Your intellectual ability will not save you. Your money will not save you. The Pope will not save you. You will not save yourself. They are, these are all these salvations of false religions. There is no hope but in the one Lord Jesus Christ. And... Next, we have a much bigger problem than the devil. You know, everyone says the devil made me do it. Oh, that is not counsel you'll find in Scripture. You have a very willing partner in crime to all those activities, your heart. And the problem of our hearts, as Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, is that they are desperately wicked and deceitful above else. Who can know it? So they manufacture idols for us to worship in God's place. They comfort us and allow us to celebrate our sin 
without the interference of a holy God. See, we are born worshippers. And we make offerings at every altar except before the holy God of the heavens. As some of you would be far more excited to meet A.B. de Villiers, Hugh Grant, or even Tim Keller here today than you would be to sit under the ministry of God's word and to meet with Jesus Christ. He's the only one that is deserving of glory and praise and honor. But that is the nature of human hearts. Romans 3.11 says this, There is no one who seeks for God. But then, how is it that man can be saved if no one is seeking after God? Well, the Bible asks and answers this question. In Romans 10.14 it says, How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in whom of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And in Ezekiel 36.26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the Bible tells us that God puts a new heart in people. And then they hear the preaching of the gospel. And then they may believe in Jesus Christ and they may call on his name for salvation. You see, the preaching of the word is a grace from God that leads to salvation. It's how the obstacle, the factory of idols in our hearts is overcome. And finally, the problem of false teachers. The two verses after today's text that immediately follow today's text are, it's uh, 15 and 16, Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. This is where the rubber meets the road. It seems that the modern church has altogether forgotten this important warning from our Lord. Why? It's because false teachers keep many from entering the kingdom of God by their wicked deceptions. They claim to be Christians, and on the surface they look and sometimes sound like Christians. Now, occasionally they say things that are right. But that doesn't prove they're from God. It simply proves that Satan comes disguised as an angel of light, which is the promise from Scripture. You see, listen, these people are everywhere. Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Joyce Mayer, Creflo Dollar, John Crowder, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, T.D. Jakes, and hundreds of others. They spew out toxic self-help, universalism, and prosperity gospels. They're actually easier to spot if you know what you're looking for. You see, they're the ones always quoting scripture out of context, watering down the gospel, focusing on wealth, and teaching you that camels can fit through the eye of a needle. I know their messages sound attractive to people. Everybody's saying, it's a new season, we need a new message. But listen, as Burke Parsons said, you can try and repackage Christianity as a religion of social justice and of health and of wealth. But saying you're a new kind of Christian with a new kind of Christianity is basically saying that you're an old kind of heretic. It's all been tried before, people. It's all been shown to be false. There is nothing new under the sun. And the Bible tells us, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. This is the seriousness. You only need to look to the scripture and see how Jesus dealt with these people. He said, he called them wolves. The Pharisees, he called a brood of vipers, fools, liars, and hypocrites. Cut them off. Throw them out. Don't eat the meat and spit out the bones. If the fish is crunchy, don't eat it. 
I plead with you in the name of Jesus, flee from false teachers. Come to the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive life. But with, with all this in mind, with all the obstacles, how do I actually get on this way to heaven? How do I receive forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ? You must enter by the narrow gate through Jesus Christ. Galatians says, uh, so we also have believed in him in order that we could be justified by faith in Christ. And Mark 1.15 says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved, and, and through faith, and not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, so that, uh, uh, not of your own work, so that no one can boast. See, if we could do it ourselves, we'd boast. So either you contribute something to your salvation, or you don't. And that's why Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the law, through my good deeds, then Christ died needlessly. Therefore, trust in Christ alone, by faith alone, to enter by this narrow gate. Secondly, you must do so on your own. Think of it like a turnstile. You do not enter as a group. You do not enter because you are in a, in a church. You do not enter because your family is Christian. You do not enter because your spouse is Christian. You do not enter because your child is a Christian. You do not enter because they have great faith. You enter purely on the basis of your standing before God. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ. Third, you must do so empty-handed. An example of this is the rich young ruler in Mark 10, who said to Jesus that he had kept all the commandments, but he wished to know the way to salvation. And Jesus, knowing that full well that he hadn't kept all the commandments, gave him a little heart test and said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, Follow me. And the Bible says, But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. See, what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? See, he could not enter. That's why in Luke 14, Jesus said, So likewise, whosoever he is of you that does not forsake all he has cannot be my disciple. And so he wasn't saying literally... Go and literally now sell everything you have and give, get rid of all that money. It's the fact that he wasn't prepared to. See, God says, let the rich enjoy their riches. It's a gift from God. But if that thing is what you hold on to, you can't, you're, you're a camel. You can't squeeze through the eye of the needle. You can't get through the turnstile. For and finally, you must do so with difficulty. In Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violence, take it by force. There is almost a violence necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. A violence against the desires and the lusts of the flesh. And in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Shocking. So what does it mean to live this Christian life? It means to put down your sin. To put down the deeds of the flesh. To rid yourself of idolatry, the love of money, sexual immorality, the gossiping. And to take up Christ. To live in holiness, in peace, in mercy, in grace, in love, in joy, and in hope.
It is the clear testimony throughout all of Scripture that God calls on mankind to make a choice. Deuteronomy 24, 24, 15 says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But make a choice. Deuteronomy 30, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and he is your length of days. The word of the Lord has come to us today saying, enter by the narrow gate. It is a command offering only two alternatives, life forever or destruction forever. You must enter by the narrow gate, whom is Jesus Christ. And you must do so in the manner he has set forth, which is by faith alone. Without works, faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to scripture alone. And each one of you here today will leave having made a choice. Either you will have rejected or you will have accepted this command. You have been confronted by the command of Jesus Christ. Either you will embrace him, repenting of your sin, and trusting for him for your salvation, and leaving with eternal life, or you will leave here rejecting his command and continuing on the path to eternal destruction. There is no middle ground, no neutral territory. You either actively accept or actively reject this command unto life. That's why I called it, enter by the narrow gate, the command unto life. So if you, if you know that you have heard from God, here today. Don't go away without Christ. And if you are thinking, but I am too sinful. John 3.16 says, whoever believes. You are not too sinful. Look, no one is too far gone. No situation has gone too far for the grace and, and love and mercy and kindness of Jesus Christ. No one is beyond his reach. In fact, he is greatly magnified in, in saving great sinners. So come to the table of mercy. Myself and others will be here to talk with you, to answer your questions and to pray with you afterwards. So please do free, uh, feel free to come and see us. But I, I urge you, do not go away from here today. Without Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Even though we've heard hard words, I thank you that you make soft hearts out of hard truths. And I pray for those here today who have not entered by the narrow gate. May you open their hearts to receive your grace and mercy through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign in salvation. Save your people today. In in your name, Jesus Christ, thank you for what you have done for us. Amen. I bless you all in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.